Dhamma ki jai, Vrindavan Dhamma ki jai, Mathura Dhamma ki jai, Navadrip Mayapur Dhamma ki jai, Jagannath Puri Dhamma ki jai, Ganga Mayajuna Devi ki jai, Bhakti Devi ki jai, Tulsi Maharani ki jai, Samaveta Bhakta Rinda ki jai, Gaur Premananda. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Gauranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada, Nama Om Vishnu Padaya. Krishna Prasaya Bhutale Srimati Bhakti Vedanta Swami Nijanamani Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Pacharani Nivasesa Sinivani Paskatyade Satarani Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Yuta Parakamalam Shri Gauravani Vaishnavisha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Bitam Sam Sajivam Sadvaitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Deva Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Bitam Shri Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya October 27th in Santan South Africa, and we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Chapter 17, Punishment and Reward of Kali, Text 35. Sutta Uvacha, Parikshitai Vamadishta, Sakalir Jatave Patum, Tamudyatsa Simahedam, Dandapani Mivoyatam Sutta Uvacha Sri Sutta Goswami said Parikshita by Maharaj Parikshit Evam thus Adishta being ordered Saha he Kalahi the personality of Kali Jata, Jata, there was, was Vepatuhu, trembling, trembling, Tam, Tam him, him, Ujita, Ujita raised, raised, Asim, Asim sword, sword, Aha, Aha said, said Idam, Idam, thus, thus Dandapanim, Yamaraja, the personality of death, Yamaraja, Eva, Eva, like, Ujitam, almost ready. Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. Sri Sutra Goswami said, The personality of Kali, thus being ordered by Maharaj Pariket, began to tremble in fear. Seeing the king before him like Yamaraja, ready to kill him, Kali spoke to the king as follows. Purport. The king was ready to kill the personality of Kali at once, as soon as he disobeyed his order. Otherwise the king had no objection to allowing him to prolong his life. The personality of Kali also, after attempting to get rid of the punishment in various ways, decided that he must surrender unto him, and thus he began to tremble in fear of his life. The king, or the executive head, must be so strong as to stand before the personality of Kali like the personality of death, Yamaraja. The king's order must be obeyed, otherwise the culprit's life is at risk. That is the way to rule the personalities of Kali who create disturbance in the normal life of the state citizens. Sutta Uvacha Parikshitai Vam Adishta Sa Kalir Jatave Patu Tam Udyata Simahe Dam Dandapanim Ivo Jatam. Sri Sutta Goswami said, The personality of Kali, thus being ordered by Maharaj Pariket, began to tremble in fear, seeing the king before him like Yamaraja ready to kill him. Kali spoke to the king as follows. Prabhupada here is talking about good government, that the executive head of state should be ready to stop all the activities of Kali or at least be able to control them. Uh, I don't think it's possible to stop them completely. Uh, and like in America, we had prohibition where they tried to stop alcohol completely. And all it did was, was create an underground criminal uh, economy in alcohol. So, I mean, even today, governments do regulate sinful activities. Uh, alcohol particularly is regulated by governments. I don't think there's any government that has unregulated alcohol. It can only be sold in certain shops at certain times, right, to certain people, and there's very high taxes on it, the same with tobacco. Uh, of course, there's no regulation on caffeine. <laughs> That's a 
widely available drug, psychoactive drug to everybody. Uh, prostitution is, is regulated. Of course, it's illegal, uh, but there's very few places where it's actually, uh, it's de jure illegal, but there's very few places where it's de facto illegal. So the governments generally tolerate that there's certain areas where prostitution is not heavily prosecuted. And everybody knows that's the red light district of town, and that's where you can find prostitution. Um, gambling is also, by most countries, tightly regulated. I mean, when I was growing up, I don't know if there were any legal, legal casinos in America except in Las Vegas. And now it's become legal, you know, but it's, it's still regulated by the government. You can't just have a gambling hall anywhere. Uh, and it's, again, highly taxed and things like that. So the, the government does have some idea. Of course, meat-eating is the one thing that we don't find is highly restricted by modern governments. Uh, Prabhupada talked about how when he was growing up, if somebody wanted to eat meat, they had to do it secretly. You know, there were some certain quarters where meat-eating was allowed. So really, meat-eating should be regulated just like the governments currently regulate gambling, alcohol, tobacco, and prostitution. Uh, of course, they could regulate them much more, and we find at the present time these things are becoming less and less and less and less regulated. You know, I, again, when I was a child, many places in America wouldn't sell alcohol on Sundays at all. Well, there are still a few places like that. The idea is you're supposed to go to church, you're not supposed to be drinking. <laughs> and as I said, gambling used to be much more regulated. Um, it's becoming very difficult to regulate prostitution with the Internet. I mean, the Internet is it's just, it is practically pulling prostitution out of the hands of the government. It, it's just, just become endemic and, and a really serious problem. Of course, the main reason why modern governments are struggling to regulate these activities of the age of Kali is that most of them, we're not going to say all of them, but most of the government agents are themselves agents of Kali. So this, mm-hmm. is, this is a problem. How are they going to regulate the activities of Kali when they're agents of Kali? And when they're supported by agents of Kali. Mm-hmm. Right? The great general, who's the great general of Kali Yuga at the present time? Lust. Well, lust there. But the modern media, really, mm-hmm. is the great general of, of Kali Yuga and Things that were unheard of in the world are now commonplace because of television and, and video. And again, the internet has taken television and movies everywhere. Mm-hmm. It used to be much more complicated. People were much more sheltered. You know, when I was very young, people didn't travel nearly as much as they did today. To get a letter from America to Europe you know, could take as long as a month. When you got news, you, you got news, foreign news was at least a week delayed. Mm. There wasn't this fast communication. My, my sister ended up uh, marrying a Yemenite man and living in Israel, and we couldn't call her. We had no way to call her. The letter would take a month to get there. We would make a recording. We had a big tape recorder, bigger, twice as big as that projector. A big, big recorder, reel-to-reel. We would make a recording, and then we would send it over there, and then they had an identical recorder, and they would play it, make another recording, and send it back. That was how we would communicate. People were traveling across the oceans by boat. I mean, when I traveled transatlantically from my sister's wedding when I was three, I went on a propeller plane. So the the ideas and cultures weren't spread so rapidly, you understand? You know, if there was some... But now, Kali is using the media just instantly to spread d- degradation everywhere. So it's, it's really gone out of control. It's really, really gone out of control. I mean, we have some political leaders, uh, like this Modi in India, for example, who's really trying to regulate Kali. And maybe someday Tulsi Gabbard will have a bigger position in America, and that would be nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we really need, we definitely need to have people in positions of government who are not themselves agents of Kali, who are uh, followers of Maharaj Purkit. Now, they probably wouldn't, in modern society, be able to deal quite the way Maharaj Pariket dealt. They wouldn't be able to get out their sword and say, hey, you know, that, that's not going to work in, in a modern democracy. The reason that's not going to work is that government leaders were so corrupt for so long that the, the movement for democracy was to reduce the power of the leaders. That was the whole purpose of democracy. That the, the leaders, of course, it started in Europe, the kings in Europe were corrupt, the churches were corrupt, the, the churches were agents of Kali, the governments were agents of Kali, and so the people said, enough of this, 
you know, we need government, okay, we can't survive without government, but let's weaken government, let's divide government into three branches, let's have government subject to popular vote, and, and so forth and so on. And so the government's no longer able to be strong like this. And we see places where the government is still strong like this, where there is still a monarchy, that uh, they often misuse their power. Still it goes on. I mean, there's some small countries that have absolute government and they try to follow some sort of religious law, particularly some of the Muslim countries. But we see they misuse it. They misuse it to execute political prisoners, yes? To jail political prisoners, execute political prisoners. So this is why the government no longer has this kind of power. But if we had a good government, then giving the government this kind of power would be a very good thing. Um, if we're going to get that good of a government again before the age of Kali is over and Satya Yuga begins, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Srila Prabhupada would sometimes talk about, like in this purport, having both a strong and good government, and other times he would talk about, let's just use democracy and Krishna consciousness. So it depends on... on the, you know. But will we be able to have someone... I mean, if we can be extremely frank, uh, even in ISKCON, we've had to reduce the power of our leaders. You know, when Srila Prabhupada first left, we had 11 zonal acharyas, each of whom had the power in their zone, practically, of Srila Prabhupada. And it didn't work out very well, to put it very mildly. It 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 wasn't good. It wasn't good for the leaders. They couldn't handle that much power and authority. It wasn't good for the devotees. And so... What we've done systematically, what the GBC has done, is reduce and reduce and reduce and reduce and reduce the power of the authorities. I mean, you know, we see practically, almost every year there's a GBC resolution to reduce the power and influence of the authorities. So this is the, the problem. You know, if, if you have competent leaders, why do you have to reduce their authority? This is the, the question. And, and this is, I think, something that we really... You know, sorry to speak so frankly about this, but I think somebody has to speak frankly about it sometimes. And my question is, if you feel these people are bona fide, why do you have to reduce their authority so much? Make up your mind. You know, either say that they're just some sort of figureheads, and, and therefore they have practically no power, or say that they're bona fide and give them the, the proper power. You know, it's to have this sort of, these are the people who are in charge and these are the authorities, but they can't have any power is, is, is not really a very honest situation. Does that make sense? Is it all right if I talk about such things? Yeah. I, I, think, I think we have to put it out on the, on the table. You know, we give more authority to the Tamil presidents than we do to the Diksha Gurus, which is quite a fascinating, I mean, it really fascinates me as a, as a, as a professor of the sociology of religion, why, why we have done that. Why, why we consider the temple presidents and the managerial authorities to be more qualified to have power over devotees' lives than we do the people who are doing diction. It's quite interesting. Yeah. But this is the, the sort of, of scenario we're looking at as far as somebody looking at this purport and saying, okay, we're just going to implement it. It's not so easy. Mm-hmm. And even in our devotee society, we have found that giving people this kind of power, you have to follow, I mean, we wouldn't give anybody this kind of power. You have to follow my order or I'll immediately execute you on the spot. You know, but giving people that some kind of similar power has not proved to be a very um, favorable thing mm-hmm. in our Krishna consciousness movement. I mean, I was just listening this morning in Nectar Devotion. Gwit Prabhupada writes that, you know, Vaidhi Bhakti means you follow the order of the Guru and there's no question of refusal. Mm-hmm. But again, we, we haven't found that having that kind of a system, which is very much like this, Prabhupada's saying the same thing. He's saying that Parikit is very happy to let Kali live as long as he follows his instructions. But as soon as Kali doesn't follow his instructions, he's going to kill him. But we haven't found that instituting systems that give authorities that much power works at the present time. Just, whether we're talking about you know, religious leaders, whether we're talking about government leaders, whether we're talking about business leaders, we're talking about a family. You know, again, when, when I was a child, legally, a man had a lot of power over the wife and children. Legally speaking. You just go back to the 50s and 60s, and it wasn't that long ago. 
that in most countries of the world a married woman could not legally own property. You know, when I was a kid, not only did the women take their husband's last name, they took their first name. So you'd say, here's Mrs. Charles Smith. I mean, she did still have her name as Betty or whatever. But that was how, this is, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Charles Smith. This is Mrs. Charles Smith. And it was, now the husbands don't have that much authority over their wives, legally speaking. And nor do parents have that much authority over their children. You know, the, the concept that the government could come and take your children away if you're not taking care of them properly, was unheard of when I was a kid. I mean, it just... The government's going to take the children away from their parents? I mean, it may be in an extreme situation, but now they're taking children away from their parents if the parents let the kids walk to the park alone. I mean, this is what's happening, you know. If the parents say, okay, my my nine-year-old kid can walk two blocks home from the park, and the, the government is taking them away. So anyway, I'm just trying to bring up that there's some there's a little bit of a problematic situation here with taking what Srila Prabhupada says in this purport and say, okay, we're going to copy-paste this on society. So the principle is certainly true, that if we could have good leaders, if we could have good Brahmins, good Ksatriyas, good Vaishyas, then they should have this kind of power. Without this kind of power, there's havoc in society. But giving this kind of power to bad leaders causes another kind of havoc in society. So we're stuck in a situation where we don't have good leaders and therefore we can't give them this kind of power and therefore people are unprotected. And this is a very bad situation. So part of the purpose of our Krishna consciousness movement is to train good leaders. That's one of the purposes we have. The primary purpose of the Krishna consciousness movement, of course, is so each individual can develop Raj Prema Bhakti. That is the primary purpose of the Hare Krishna movement. The overriding purpose. And we also have a purpose, I mean, to in order to accomplish that, we want to have a society where we can associate and so forth. But we also have a purpose to affect society even in a, shall we say, material way to provide a foundation. Just like here at the temple, you provide the material facility for people. You provide a place for them to live and you provide food for them to eat, yes? And water and so forth. That's kind of like, that's kind of like a, what a government provides or what a landlord provides. That's such a function. So you're providing that in order to people to have a, a base by which they can execute spiritual activities. And we would like to do that, not just for the people who live in our ashrams. We'd like to do that for society in general. We would like society in general to have the material facility that they need to execute Krishna consciousness. So doing that is the activity of ksatriya. Providing, you know, making sure there's water and utilities and so forth, and there's peace. And there's so we're trying to train those ksatriyas. That's, that's one of our purposes of the Hare Krishna movement. And we're also, of course, you can't have that unless you train brahmanas to guide the ksatriyas. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to br- train brahmanas not just who are going to be sheltered in our own communities. I read a post on Facebook by one Guru Kuli in Mayapur, and he's saying, you know, the householders who work outside, they're all in Maya, basically. That was his sort of <laughs> they can't be Krishna conscious if they work outside, which I thought was a little... Um, fanatical and he was saying so we should just develop our own farm communities <coughs> where devotees can work in a way that they don't have to interact with Maya and I thought you know you want to make us a cloistered community a cloistered organization alright Prabhupada wanted our own farm communities but that's not the only thing he wanted he also wanted us to go out and affect society to do that we can't just be cloistered and closed off from the rest of the world you know, well, Kali Yuga's out there, so we're just going to build our own little, you know, virtual bomb shelter kind of thing. You know, just our own schools and our own occupations, which is what the Amish do, for example. The Amish do that, the Orthodox Jews do that. I mean, there are a number of religious communities, some Mormon communities do that, where they kind of just form their own ghetto, you could say. Yes, in sociology we talk about this, you're forming your own ghetto, your own voluntary ghetto. Okay, we're not going to, we're going to keep Kali out at the walls. Which, by the way, has not been that effective either because we're preaching society and so even when we make our own little closed farming communities, Kali Yuga finds his way in anyway. I mean, just to, to be 
perfectly, perfectly honest about that. But we also have an interest in society in general. Prabhupada had an interest in society in general, which means we're trying to train brahmanas and we're trying to train satriyas and vaishyas and shudras to be the leaders in their communities. We want leaders among the shudras too. We want people to show how to be a devotional uh, actor and a devotional athlete like Peter Burwash, who's an athlete and came to Prabhupada and Prabhupada said, play tennis for Krishna. He didn't say give up playing tennis and, you know, go hide yourself away on a farm. He said go play tennis for Krishna. So Prabhupada wants us to become the leaders in these areas so that we can, at least to some degree, whether or not we would, in the Kali Yuga, as I say, get out our swords is, is debatable, but that we would at least to some degree have leaders who are qualified enough that they could have more power. Now, since we're struggling with that in our own society, that we're struggling within ISKCON to say these leaders are pure enough that we can give them you know, something close to absolute power. So I have a question as to how much we could do that, train people in the greater society. But at least we want to move in that direction. I want to look also briefly about, uh, because Prabhupada's this purport is, is mostly about society, so I, I spoke mostly about society. But I want to just look briefly at the uh, transcendent principle that's being talked about. Because Prabhupada's talking about <coughs> relative principles here, about government in the world. Those are relative, mundane, external, varnashram things. They are not in and of themselves spiritual. They are still important. Just like on the property, we may talk about where can I get internet, where can I get a desk, right? How can I get clean drinking water? Those are not unimportant discussions. We're not going to say to people, well, I'm not going to talk about clean drinking water <laughs> and laundry facility. Let's just, you know, talk about Krishna and Bakasura. So, you know, we... we <laughs> so in the same way, we want to talk about these things for society in, in, in general. But I, in... Within these things, there's a transcendent principle. So, uh, there's many, in fact, but we're going to look at one of them. And here, Prabhupada says that Kali was attempting to get rid of his punishment in various ways and decided, finally, the way to get rid of his suffering and punishment was to surrender. So, if we take this verse in purport as not being about Kali and Pariksha, which is what we've been talking about so far, but if we take this verse in purport as being about the soul and God, Kali representing the, the errant soul and Parikit as the representative of God, which he is, of course. And then we can look at this a little differently and, and think of how we could apply this uh, to our personal lives right now because I think the other discussion is a little broader. And we may not be able to apply the other, the other things I just discussed. We may not be able to apply that at 2 o'clock this afternoon, but I think uh, <laughs> uh, this one we could. So all of us are suffering, yes? Anybody have no suffering? All of us have some suffering. And this suffering is due to being punished by material nature. I was just again reading Nectar Devotion where Prabhupada was saying that all of, or maybe it was a lecture, it was a lecture on Nectar Devotion, where Prabhupada was saying all of our suffering is due to our vikarma. It's all due to our sinful activities. And we can talk about that in terms of crime and punishment. We're committing a crime and therefore we get punished. We can talk about it like that, uh, but it's not exactly the Krishna's punishing. A better way to talk about it, I think, so that we don't think of God as a punisher, although that, that's accurate, is if you look at that window back there that has a crack in it. So whoever walked into that window, damaged, I'm sure they also got bruised. Hopefully they didn't crack their bones as much as the window got cracked. But I'm sure they experienced some pain so if you try to walk through a glass door, you will experience pain. Correct? Mm -hmm. Now, that's not exactly because the architect and the construction company thought, let's put a glass door here to hurt people. Mm -hmm. you know, and it's not exactly like, ha you walked in the glass door, here's your punishment. It's not exactly mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. It's simply that when you use things in a way they're not meant to be used, you suffer. If you do things that it's a door, it, you know, it's it, 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 it's a door that has to be opened. It, it's not the air. So if you see something differently from what it is, if you perceive things differently from what they are, and you therefore use them in a way that they are not, then you suffer. 
And if you see things as they are and use them as they are, you don't suffer. And you can take that as you get rewarded for acting in truth and you get punished for acting in illusion. But it's again, it's not exactly that Krishna or either, even Yamaraj, it's not exactly that they're saying, okay, you believe in me, therefore you go to heaven, you don't believe in me, therefore you go to hell. It, it's not exactly like that. So this is why we are suffering. We're suffering because we keep trying to walk through glass doors, basically. We, we, we see things in the world differently than what they are. We, we perceive them as, as, oh, this is an object for me to exploit and enjoy. But it's not an object for you to exploit and enjoy. It's someone else's property that's meant to be used for them. You follow? Yeah. Right? It's meant to be used for their purposes. Just like I'm, I'm staying here in the temple as a guest, and if I think, wow, everything around me is, is an object of my enjoyment for me to exploit, and I steal it. You follow? But if I think, oh, I'm here as a guest at the temple, why am I here as a guest at the temple? To use the property of the temple in the service of the devotees at the temple. That's what I'm here for. Now, I'm also getting facility. I'm also given a place to sleep and I'm given something to eat. But why? I'm given all that because I'm meant to use the facility here to serve the people here. So Krishna gives us stuff. He gives us air and he gives us water and he gives us... Because we have a particular business here. This is his jurisdiction and everything here is meant to be used for his purposes and he's very happy to maintain us like any good employer would. You know, he'll, he'll give us whatever we need for our service and the more responsibility we take in our service, the more facility that he gives us. And if, but if we just think, oh great, there's all these things around here for me to enjoy, then we suffer because that, that's not what they are. So how are we going to get free of this suffering? Right? So we try many ways to get free of this suffering without removing the veil of illusion. We try to keep this consciousness. Well, let's see. All right. So everything at this temple is my enjoyable object for me to exploit. And the reason I'm suffering is I'm not exploiting it in the right way. <laughs> you know, I just have to find a different way of exploiting it. Or I have to find out how not to get caught exploiting it. You know, I, I, I use the internet at one in the morning for pornography or something. You know, I mean, they, they would think like that. Somehow I have to, have to find some way around the, the... So that's what Kali was doing, and that's what we do as conditioned souls. We stay within this frame that here I am. Look at this world. It is for me to enjoy. This isn't the story of King Paranjana. Right when he has this discussion with the woman of his, who's his intelligence, and I think she asks, he asks her, I can't remember he. I think he asks her, "What are you doing here? Who are you? What are you doing here?" She says, "I don't know. I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm doing here. But let's enjoy. You know, here I am in this world. I don't know who I am. I don't know how I got here. But look at all these enjoyable objects for me all around. And we keep this frame, and within this frame." Let's see, how could I try to walk through that glass without breaking the glass? Hmm. You know, and of course you can't do it. And no matter how you try to do it, you can't do it. And Prahlad says that we're happy as long as we don't try to be happy. Our natural state is happiness. That's our natural state. And as soon as we try to be happy, then we become miserable. So rather than trying to adjust the material energy, right? rather than trying to adjust within the framework of illusion to try to be happy, which is what the conditioned souls do. If I live here, if I have this kind of work, if I get married, if I don't get married, if I marry this person, if I have this number of children spaced this far apart and they go to this schools and I get this amount of money and this house and this dog and, you know, this phone and... Somehow, if I learn this technique of interacting with people, <laughs> if I learn this, how, if I learn how to manipulate people in this way, if I learn how to manipulate people in this way, if I learn how to manipulate my mind in this way, if I eat this kind of food, and this, you know, instead of doing that, which was what Kali was doing, he was kind of trying to negotiate. If we just say, "Hey, Krishna, 
I surrender. Like Robin says here, the king was had no objection to allowing Kali to live as long as he followed the rules. Krishna doesn't have a mood that he wants us to suffer. Not at all. Not even in any way, shape, or form. Krishna never wants anyone to suffer, ever. You know, just like the, the architect in the build, they didn't want anybody to walk through the door. They're not happy when somebody walks. Oh, great! <laughs> you know, that, that, that's, that's, not, that's not how they think. So Krishna wants us to be happy, but he wants us to be happy, actually happy. So when we surrender to him, it's not like you surrender to somebody in the world. You know, you surrender someone in the world, they're also exploitive. And so it doesn't work out very well. If you fully surrender to your government, do you fully surrender to your employer, or you fully surrender to your spouse, or to your parents, or to anybody. It, it, it's not going to have this effect, because they don't have 100% your interests in mind. So we think it's going to be like that with Krishna. We think if I fully surrender to Krishna, he's going to exploit me. But Krishna doesn't, he doesn't need to exploit me. He's already full. He's already infinite. He has no inclination to exploit me. And I'm part of him. Why would he exploit himself? I mean, even in this world, the least exploitive relationship tends to be between parents and children. If not absolutely, there are many parents who exploit their children. And there's no, you know, just being a parent doesn't make you pure. (laughs) But there's a tendency for parents not to exploit their children and to be the well-wishers of their children. Why? Because they feel that the children are part of them. So Prabhupada said, you know, the mother's love is the closest thing, especially the mother, usually a little bit more than the father. Why? Because the mother actually carried that baby in her body. You know, from the mother's perspective, this baby is, is part of me. It came, it came from my body. You know, just like we take care of our hair. You know, if we just see some hair lying around... When it grows, when it's coming out of our head, you know, we take care of it. You see some fingernails lying around. But when it's part of our body, then we, we take care of it. So when the mother, she sees this baby as part of my body, how she takes care of it, even though little babies, especially very little babies, are, are trouble. The, the, the very, very small baby, the first month or so, the baby's really only trouble. About six weeks, the baby starts smiling, and they're not just trouble. But first, they're only trouble. Like one of my former Gurukul students, she gave birth very prematurely, 24 weeks or something like that, pregnancy. You know, wow. I mean, talk about only trouble. You know, she and her husband are taking shifts in the um, uh, NICU, and I mean, it's a really intense. She posted a thing on Facebook. Is there anybody who's not sick and is willing to be a compulsive hand washer? who can come and help me out for a few hours at the NICU with my baby. You know, I need a break. But why are we willing to do that? Because we consider they're part of us. You follow? And so most parents, not all, but most parents, are happy if their children excel them. They're not envious of their own children. Why? Because they see the children's accomplishments as their accomplishment. They don't see a separation. You know, parents will work hard at two jobs so their kids can graduate from university when the parents never graduated from university. Mm-hmm. And they'll even say, my dear son, your graduation is my graduation. Mm-hmm. So they don't have this, this envy. Of course, that's relatively, relatively speaking. It's not, it's not absolute, N- not at all. Uh, all. All parents, if they're not pure devotees, have some exploitive and envious mood even toward themselves, but to speak of toward their children. But this, we, we can understand with this analogy that because I'm part of Krishna, he doesn't have any envious or exploitive mood towards me. Why would he? I'm, I'm part of him. You know, a chinta beta beta tattva. In one sense, I am one with him. I mean, there, there, there is a, a reality in which we and God are one. We're not only different. And so when I surrender to Krishna, what I'm really doing is surrendering to my own highest good. Just like Krishna has an expansion as Paramatma, he's the supreme self, he's the self of the self. If Krishna is the self of myself, like I am the self of this body, Krishna is the self of myself. 
So surrendering to Krishna means surrendering to my own highest good. Prabhupada would talk about it as, you know, actual self-interest. I'm not really, in other words, I'm not really surrendering to an other. There's, there's not this separateness. I mean, there is an eternal separateness, but that's for Leela. That's for fun. That's for, that's for enjoyment. That's for exchange. So there's a way in which I'm eternally a separate individual from God, but there's also a sense in which I'm not. And it, it really, you know, I'm just surrendering to my own highest interest, to my own highest good, to my own highest self. That's what Krishna is. You know, and therefore all of our suffering is removed. Because all of our suffering is due to working in illusion that I have some separateness from God, I have a separate interest from God, the things of the world are separate from God. So how do we practically surrender? Well, in one sense, we all know how to surrender. It, it's, it, it's kind of a funny question. How do I surrender? We let go of the things that are false and we accept the things that are real. That's two of the, of the six principles of surrender. Now, we may take that in a, in a religious ritualistic formula. Mm. Okay, well, that means... I don't have meeting illicit sex intoxication gambling. I chant 16 rounds. That's what it means. And it does mean that. We're not saying it doesn't mean that. But on a deeper level, it means I let go of this idea that I am the controller and I am this, the enjoyer. All of those things are, are meant for that purpose, as, as Rupa Goswami says. All the regulated principles, all the do's and do nots are servant of the principle to always remember Krishna and never forget him which I will only do if I let go of my false ego, because as long as I have my false ego, I always remember my false ego and never forget it. <laughs> yes? Right? Even when I'm thinking of Krishna, it's in terms of my false ego. Mm. What can Krishna do for me? Mm. How am I a great devotee by worshipping Krishna? And so forth. Mm. So, the really accepting and rejecting, that will manifest externally. Obviously, if you let go of your false ego, you're not going to be having illicit sex and take intoxication and so forth. Mm. And you're be very happy to chant 16 rounds and pro- in fact Prabhupada said you'd want to chant 16,000 rounds but the main thing we want to let go of is this idea that I'm the controller and I'm the enjoyer and I'm the center of the universe and accept the idea that I'm a servant of the Lord I'm a part and parcel of the Lord I'm qualitatively one with the Lord and I'm meant to use everything for his pleasure which is my highest pleasure mm-hmm. that Krishna's pleasure and my highest pleasure are exactly the same mm-hmm. there, there's no difference in that there's, there's a oneness uh, Rupa Goswami calls this samarta. We talk about arta as economic development. But arta also means any kind of goal, anything that's good. Sam means the same. Like Pandita Samadarshana seems the same. Samarta is, a, is bhakti, where we see that my enjoyment, the way Rupa Goswami and Jiva and, and Vishnu Chakravati Thakur explain it, is my enjoyment and Krishna's enjoyment are one and the same. There's not some difference. You know, materially, material illusion, I don't see like that. I see that my making you happy has some relationship to my happiness, perhaps. But it's two separate things. If I try to make you happy, it's with the idea that I'm going to get some happiness separately from that. To be happy at your happiness is something we feel occasionally. Occasionally we may feel We may go to the wedding of a friend... And we're just, we, we look at the bride and groom looking at each other with love and we feel happy completely at their happiness. We, you know, we have some situation. We see somebody get initiated and we're, we're happy at their happiness. Generally, we're too envious to do that. Generally, we're like, why are they happy? Why not me? <laughs> but with, with some artha, is Krishna's happiness and my happiness are one. Because I'm part of Krishna. <laughs> Yes. So that is the accepting, rejecting. Rejecting this idea that I have a separate interest from the Lord, that I'm a separate controller. Which also, as I said, shows up externally in what we accept and reject. And then Krishna is my maintainer. I have some work to do in the world, but my work is not maintaining. Krishna is maintaining. I give up anxiety about maintenance. I have anxiety about how to please Krishna, but I don't have anxiety about maintenance. Krishna is my protector. I'm not really protected by the fences and the electric wires. And I remember visiting a family in South Africa many years ago that they had all these things. You know, and they still got robbed. You know, they still got robbed. 
They had dogs. They said, well, the first thing that happened was the, the thieves poisoned the dogs. Then they got new dogs, and I thought, why? What's the point if, if your dog barrier can be so easily breached? You know, if all somebody has to do is give poisoned meat to your dogs and your dogs are useless, why bother having them at all? So I'm not my protector. Right? Prabhupada says we all have experienced that you know, you, you can lose some valuable item and it stays there and nobody touches it. And you can keep your valuables at home under lock and key and somebody steals it. Mare Krishna Rake Ke Rake Krishna Rake. Of course, generally speaking, we should make some provisions for protection out of, out of service, not out of fear. Out of service. This is Krishna's body. These are Krishna's things. It's my responsibility to take care of them. But ultimately, it's Krishna's decision. It's Krishna's decision. If Krishna says, okay, you know, you don't have any need for that body anymore, I'm taking it back. You know, it was never mine to begin with. So to accept what's favorable, to reject what's unfavorable, to fully feel Krishna is my maintainer, Krishna is my protector, to always be humble. That doesn't mean that I, I'm a liar and I say I'm, I'm poor when I'm rich or I'm ugly when I'm beautiful. You know, that humility is not lying. Humility is understanding. Whatever I have is by the grace of God. It's all lent to me. It's not mine. And practical humility is when I really use everything in Krishna's service because I know it's not mine. I don't take personal credit. I'm supposed to be teaching Nectar of Devotion uh, in Wellington, in New Zealand, in uh, December and January. And I already have a lot of um, lesson plans and materials for teaching Nectar Devotion. But I was looking at their schedule, and my materials and lesson plans don't quite fit with their schedule. So I need to sort of reorganize them. Also, most of my materials are just for teaching the first 19 chapters, which is part of the Bhakti Shastri, because that's what I usually teach. And I've never really taught the whole nectar devotion. So I was thinking, well, maybe I could do instead like a summary and an overview of the whole nectar devotion. So I contacted different devotees who I know are scholars of Bhakti Vasamri to send to a nectar devotion. And I said, do you have any materials you can share? So one of them just wrote me back this morning and he said, well, I'm hesitant to share because these are my exact notes from my classes. I wouldn't want you to use them as they are and I'd want you to give me credit. And I wrote back to him and I said, well, I never use people's notes as they are. I always customize them for my own temperament and my own methods. And I said, and I always give people credit. So at least I was trained that way in academia. So humility means you give people credit. It, it's, and the person we give credit to is Krishna. This body is Krishna's. This intelligence is Krishna's. All my talents are Krishna's. He can, how do I know? Because he can take them away like that. Right? Whatever I'm proud of, Krishna can take away in a moment. Even, even, even my ability to um, deal with temptation and maya. If Krishna wants to bewilder us, there's nothing I can do to resist that. Isn't that a fact? Therefore the Christians say, you know, and, and free us from temptation. So Krishna knows what parts of maya are going to bewilder me and he has to keep me from them and protect me from them. Otherwise, you know, I'm, I'm finished. I'm, I don't have any power in relationship even to illusion. So that, that's humility. It's, it's a very practical thing. Whatever strength I have in Krishna consciousness, whatever material that I have, that's Krishna. And then it's funny that the sixth item of surrender is to surrender. I always found that quite interesting. In other words, not to have a separate interest other than the interest of the Lord. And again, we might say, well, that doesn't sound very fair. <laughs> Why can't I have my own interests? But if we understand that Krishna is the super self, and then I understand that all of my interests are contained within the interest of the Lord. There's, there's nothing I could desire, there's nothing I could be that's not contained within Krishna. And to try to desire and be something in illusion is rather foolish. So when we do that, then we're free of all suffering. And how interesting that it often takes us lifetimes to decide to do that. <coughs> that we do that as the last resort. And even then often under duress. Like Kali is surrendering as a last resort under duress. He's not surrendering as a first resort happily. So at least we can work on trying to surrender as a first resort happily. 
At least we can try little bits of surrender, although there's a heavy essay from Bhakti Siddhanta. I actually don't like reading it. I've read it a couple times and I'm like, I don't know if I can handle reading this. Where he says partial surrender isn't surrender at all. And every time I read that, I'm like, oh. <laughs> no, give me credit for partial surrender. He's like, he's like no, sorry, please, nope. Uh, what I see is, is the benefit of partial surrender is it gradually gives you faith to do the real thing. When we surrender a little bit of our false ego and we surrender a little bit of our separate interests, and then we find that it's not only is okay, but it's blissful and it's wonderful and it's totally ecstatic. And then we think, well, okay, maybe now I'll surrender a little bit more of my false ego. Maybe I'll surrender a little bit more of my false ego. And at a certain point we say, all right, let's just jump in and surrender the whole thing. Okay, we have four minutes. Questions, comments, additions, subtractions, corrections, chastisements. <coughs> I really gave two classes today. Yes? Mm. Or does one develop that and mm. become immature in our Krishna consciousness that one actually automatically... Well, I think you're asking the wrong person because I haven't developed any simplicity. <laughs> and I don't want to preach about something I don't know anything about. I pray about that a lot. Krishna, when are you going to give me simplicity and satisfaction? Well, it's very difficult to preach about something where you have no realization. It's very risky to preach about something where you have no realization. So, I, I, I just don't have any of that quality at all. Not at all. I've been asking for it as a gift for quite some time. So, whenever Krishna decides to give me that as a gift, then maybe I'll come back here to Santon and talk to you about it. I'm not, I'm not saying that out of humility. I'm saying that quite seriously. <laughs> I really don't. Yes. Uh, the point of training our leaders to handle more power. Yeah. Uh, I was just reminded of the first verse in the of instruction. Mm. So, yeah, about handling the six urges, and that is yes. a qualification for making disciples all over the world. So, is that the um, sort of primary outcome in Christian conscious education? Definitely. Definitely. But trying to do that artificially through repression is a catastrophe. Mm. Which is why Srila Prabhupada in that purport... Oh, I am simple in the sense that I'm just devoted to Srila Prabhupada. So, oh. I could define simplicity that way. As my guru's lotus feet... Our, our guru's lotus feet is sufficient. Uh, Prabhupada talks in the purport to Nectar of Instruction, text 1, that we do that through using our senses in Krishna's service, not through repression. And in order to really fully do that, you'd have to have no separate interest. So we, we do that to the whatever extent that we don't have a separate interest. And separate interest is all based on fear. So this is a whole other discussion we, we will have good qualities of sense control and mind control and anger control as long as our sense of self-preservation is not threatened. As soon as our sense of self-preservation is threatened, then we exhibit bad qualities. So a person in the mode of ignorance, their sense of self-preservation is threatened very easily. They're full of fear. They're just basically like, a, like walking, personified fear. And anything will threaten their their sense of self-preservation and self-identity so they get angry and uh, will engage in, in sinful sense gratification very easily. When you come to the mode of passion, you have less fear because you th- see things more clearly. You can think of the mode of ignorance like if you pull that curtain down, it's like a heavy, you don't see things as they are. 
and the mode of passion is kind of like a translucent window, and the mode of goodness is like a clear window, and bhakti is like being outside. So if you're in the mode of passion, you, you see things with a little bit more clarity, and you have less fear. If you think in the mode of passion, the king who has courage. And so the, the king has, is not as worried about self-preservation, and therefore the king will act properly, even in more fearful conditions. But even those in the mode of passion, there's a certain level at which their fear kicks in, and they'll engage in sinful activities. Then those in the mode of goodness have very little fear. They're mostly in a sense of peace and joy, and therefore there's very little that that can shake their sense of self-identity and self-preservation, and therefore they're willing to act in a sense-controlled and mind-controlled way in even very difficult situations. But only those who are fully in bhakti who understand that I'm the soul and I'm eternal and I can never be hurt by anything. My identity as Krishna's service is always existent. It can never be harmed or threatened by anything. has complete fearlessness, and only in complete, absolute fearlessness will you display the sense and mind and good qualities in all circumstances. So anyone who's not completely in bhakti, therefore we can say they don't really have any good qualities, all they really have is self-preservation. And they're willing to display those good qualities as long as their self-preservation is not threatened. And the purer you are, the more and more and more it takes to threaten. I mean, uh, Radha Swami likes to quote this from the from Krishna book, that the greatness of a person is calculated as their ability to tolerate provoking situations. But that's not repression. To whatever extent one has fearlessness, to that extent one is simply not feeling provoked. Do you, do you follow? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not just a question of training. Mm-hmm. It's a question, and this goes back to the informational knowledge or experiential knowledge. Mm-hmm. It's a question of giving people spiritual experiences and having people come to a, a, a level of spiritual realization where they have a bhayachana, not a vindaway. Otherwise, it doesn't work. If people only come to a certain level then they still don't really have good qualities. And certain circumstances are going to set off problems for them. Do you follow? Mm. Like we may be very honest in general, but if we become afraid, we'll we'll lie. You understand? Mm. We lie out of fear. We steal out of fear. We cheat out of fear. We get angry out of fear. We're nasty out of fear. You know, I'll be nice to you, but if, if, if there's something that's threatening my sense of existence, then I may get angry with you. Does that make sense? And then I can't control my... I'm not control, in control of my anger anymore. My, my, my fear takes over, and I lose control. So this is the, the problem. So it's not just a question of, of you know, like some sort of military academy kind of thing. You know, all the values and character education going on in the world, as long as it's within the modes of nature, has limited effectiveness. I think you can bring people from ignorance to passion with, with a lot of that character and values training. You can bring people from adharma to dharma. For name and fame. And like that. You know, for be dharmic because it will get you better sense gratification. That's rajagun. Be dharmic because you'll feel happier inside. That's sattvagun. That's a little harder for people to do. But be dharmic to please Krishna because you have nothing to gain or lose in the world is a very different position. It's a very very high bar, isn't it? Now, in Vedic times, do you think that all of the kings were prema bhaktas? No. No. So what was the system? The, Brahm- uh, the brahmanas would keep them intact. The brahmanas would keep them intact. And the brahmanas are generally in mm. sattvagun. In sattvagun, it takes a lot to shake your good qualities. The higher you are in, sh- in sattvagun. And the brahmanas were controlled by a few paramahamsas. Mm. So you have, there's a few paramahamsas on the planet they're controlling the communities of brahmanas who are in sattvagun, and they're controlling the communities of kshatriyas who are in rajagun. Now, think about this also. 
in Rajagun, you're really obsessed with power and strength. In those days, the Brahmanas had more power than the Satriyas. Because the Brahmana said to you, you become a frog, then you became a frog. So even if as a Kshatriya you were completely materialistic, even if you didn't care about spiritual life, you were afraid of those Brahmanas. There was that fight between Vasista and Vishramita where Vasista conquered Vishramita with Brahminical subtle power. He didn't even do anything, you know. Just his, his Kamadenu started producing armies that conquered Vishramita. At one point... Um, the sister took up his, his staff. You know, if you think of all the, all the old, we think of the fairy tales, you know, the wizard with the staff. But that's actually what it was. They were wizards. You know, it's come down to us in fairy tales. These are the wizards that say, but that's what they did. They had mantras. And they had, they had rods and they had power. And they would say a mantra. And, you know, the Brahmin just went, mm, and Vena died. So if you've got Brahmins that just go, mm, and you die, you know, you're going to respect them. <laughs> right? If the Brahmins can create, they can create Brahmastras, and they, they can turn you into frogs, and they can make it stop raining in your kingdom, and, you know, you're going to do what they say, even if you're completely materialistic. And even if the brahmanas were just in mundane sattva, they have gurus who are paramahamsas. And that way you have the society remains peaceful. Absolutely no, it's a material world. So you're not going to have absolute. You are going to have, because the modes are always in competition for supremacy. So, you know, it's, it's not going to be absolute. Even on Brahma's planet, they have anxiety. Abrahma, Bhuvanaloka, Punarva, Jinojana. Will we be able to do that in the Kali Yuga? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we have statements in the Bhagavatam that by Harinam Sankirtan, we will create Brahmanas and Kshatriyas who will again make the earth like Treta Yuga or Satya Yuga. So we have those statements. But I, I really wonder if Brahmins don't have those powers, would that be effective? Because are you ever going to get the whole human society in Kali Yuga to be in Sattvagun? I don't know. In Satya Yuga, everybody's in Sattvagun. The whole, there's not even a Varna. There's not even Brahman Satya Vaishya in Satya Yuga. Everyone is Hamsa. And there, there's no, because there's no Vaishya, there's no agriculture. There's no economic development. Everything just comes out of the earth. It's still like that in Hawaii. You can just live in the forest. And I mean, I know a devotee, before she was a devotee, for one year, she just lived outside. Took baths in the rivers, pure rivers flowing down from the mountains. And climbs up the coconut trees and pulled it. She said she gained weight. <laughs> <laughs> just living on the wild banana and avocado and coconut trees. And, you know. And even though it rains there a lot, it doesn't matter because it's so warm out. Prabhupada said that Hawaii is a leftover from the previous yuga. Of course, now they're ruining everything. But anyway. It was a famous song. What was her name? Joni Mitchell about Hawaii. They paved paradise and put up a parking lot. That was written about Hawaii. But yeah, in Satya Yuga, everything just was just there. You didn't have to do agriculture. You didn't need to build much of a house. The weather was always nice. You know, you just spent all your time in meditation. Can we do that at the present time? I don't know. And, I'm not sure if we can take it to that mm-hmm. level. Mm-hmm. And if the Brahmanas, you know, starting with Sringi, who misused his powers against Parikit, the Brahmanas lost their, their subtle powers. So this is, this is a problem. Without that, is it going to be possible to get the kings to respect the Brahmanas? You know, medieval Europe, the kings respected the church because the church actually wielded temporal power mm-hmm. as if it were a government the Roman Catholic Church was like a government which of course contributed to the total corruption of the Roman Catholic Church sorry to give you such a complex answer to your question but I think it would be very useful for us to 
become visionaries. How do we envision spreading Mahaprabhu's movement all over the world? How do we envision the society changing? Mm. Not just let's make our own little farm communities where we hide ourselves from Kali Yuga, mm. which is useful and, and good and something Prabhupada wanted, but that can't be the whole strategy. What is our strategy? How are we going to train Brahmins, Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, and, and Shudras? Even we need leaders among the Shudras also, by the way. Mm. If we had Krishna conscious, you know, musicians and athletes and artists, that would make a difference in society also. Mm. Not just rulers. How are we going to do that? And we, we may have to accept the fact that we cannot give our leaders absolute power. We may have to accept that, as we're having to accept that in our own ISKCON society. At least for the foreseeable future. I don't know what it's going to be like in two or three hundred years, but at least for the foreseeable future, we, we may have to say, okay, put people in positions of leadership but give them limited power and have checks and balances and, and take that peace from democracy because we're not ready to take this peace from this. Okay, I should end now. Thank you very much.